Um, Nigel uh, explaining that some poor bloke standing up here. Um, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> I like the big build-up. Thank you. He's absolutely right. My best will not be good enough because we want the Holy Spirit to do something. And uh, doesn't matter how well this next uh, few minutes goes, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do something, we just had a chat, didn't we? And uh, we don't need to come to church to do that. So, Father, we just pray that um, always your Holy Spirit's been moving amongst us, but we are looking for something personal. We're looking for something more, and we're certainly looking for something real. So touch our hearts and challenge us and help us not to find anywhere to hide from what you want to say to us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Haggai, do you have Bibles? Do you have apps, something, whatever you're using? Have a look with me. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, please. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The uh, important little bits there on the screen. I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord. The glory of this latter temple will be greater than the former. Okay? There was a temple and it was glorious, but this new, more modest, slightly disappointing temple is going to see more glory than the previous one. The prophecy is as unlikely as it is bold, okay? That's always a brave thing. The past we know, the future we don't. So anyone who says, no matter who you are and what you are, the glory of what's to come is always going to be greater than the glory you've had is either stupid brave or know something that you've forgotten let's see where you fit into that today i need a few moments with you on the temple because haggai is talking temples today and it was david's dream king david to build a temple where the elements and the holy things that they bought through the wilderness and kept in the tabernacle, somewhere where God's visible presence could dwell amongst his people in the centre of Jerusalem. And it fell to his son, King Solomon, to build the temple. Some of you take notes, I don't know why, but you do, don't you? And uh, if you're doing so, I'm not going to read all of these, but if you want to read it, you can write these down. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 10 and 11 
Um, David gave all the details, the dimensions, the plans to Solomon. The commission was to build a house for God to dwell in, to build the temple. It was magnificent and it was a sight to see. The process of time and the, the, the decline of, of what was happening meant that eventually God's people were taken into exile. And you can read about it in 2 Kings 25, verses 8 to 10. King Nebuchadnezzar, um, people are taken away, the important intelligentsia, the religious authorities, the prominente, as it were, of the Jewish people taken into exile. The temple was destroyed, as were the city walls. When the exiles came back, walls started to be built, and Ezra laid the foundations for the new temple. There was a little period of about 18 years, and then eventually Haggai appears, and he says the work needs to start again. This temple needs to be finished. And when it was finished, that promise was given that uh, the temple would be greater, the glory would be greater than the former. I can show you a picture. There are lots of pictures of what Solomon's temple probably looked like. It probably looked something like this. We know because we know the dimensions, we know the plans, and this was incredible. The temple that was built, the second temple, was slightly more disappointing. And I thought to make the comparison, I might spend a few moments talking about the dedication of both temples. So, 1 Kings chapter 8. One thing, do you know about Solomon? Have you read about him? The man had a flair for the dramatic, if nothing else, okay? If he was going to, if you wanted a, and he would have been a great um, functions and events sort of coordinator if he wanted a different job, because this guy could put on an event, and uh, if we ever have an extension to the building, we, we'd want Solomon to arrange the dedication, because this guy had a flair for the dramatic. And I'll just talk you through the day that Solomon's temple, this temple, was dedicated. So all the priests in all their regalia come in. They bring all the regalia and all the paraphernalia from the tabernacle. Some of you know what the Ark of the Covenant is, don't you? And uh, I noticed that probably the last but the latest Indiana Jones film has, has come out. And uh, some of us remember the first one. Remember? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, the fanciful idea that the Ark of the Covenant was found and that the Nazis wanted it and, and all of that. But uh, the Ark of the Covenant, um, a gold-covered box with the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on that Moses was given, a jar containing some manna from heaven, um, Aaron's staff that, that was, was a source of miracles, and on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the symbol, the symbol of God's presence amongst his people, so it was brought into the temple and, and the priests began to minister. And I love um, this next phrase or this next passage, 1 Kings 8 verse 10. It says, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the cloud filled the house of the Lord. Yeah? And then King Solomon. Now, Solomon was as impressive as his temple was. He was physically impressive. He was young. He was probably, at the time, one of the cleverest and wisest and most eloquent people in the world. Every inch a king. And he gets up and he prays this amazing prayer. You should read 
Solomon's prayer. He said, the whole world and all the heavens couldn't contain this house, couldn't contain your presence, much less this house that I've built. But come and dwell here anyway. It's a fabulous prayer. And then to seal the thing, he blesses the people, he dedicates the temple, he makes a sacrifice, 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep, and to finish, he invites the whole nation to a feast that lasts eight days, and after eight days, he sends them home. Um, he carries on for another few days as well, but uh, that lovely little verse, the understatement of the whole Bible in 1 Kings 8, verse 66, it says, after the eight days of 24-hour feasting and celebration, and after Solomon's dedication of the temple, it says, all the people went away joyful and glad of heart. That's how you dedicate a temple, ladies and gentlemen, okay? The temple was destroyed eventually, and as I mentioned, Ezra laid a new foundation. It was more of a plinth than just a foundation, so you could see how big this was going to be. You had an idea of what it was going to look like. And to be perfectly honest with you, it was not really a poor shadow of that temple there. And the reason that I cannot show you a picture of um, the, the second temple is we don't have any dimensions to show you. In fact, I'm going to keep you in suspense for a moment. I'll show you that first in just a moment. But instead of the Ark of the Covenant, that had been lost. Instead of all the other jewels and paraphernalia, which had also probably been lost, um, they had a seven-point candelabra made. Nothing wrong with a candelabra, but the Ark of the Covenant, it isn't. Um, priests in their robes, very nice. Um, there were songs of praise sung to God. And the young people who had never seen any temple before thought, how exciting. Finally, back in our homeland. Finally, we're going to have a temple in Jerusalem again. Finally, things are going to start happening. And there was a shout of cheers. But there was a lot of people, powerful people, older people, who had remembered seeing Solomon's temple. Now, have you ever been um, on the receiving end of somebody else's disappointment? If you've ever been a man and you've ever been married and you've ever made the dreadful decision of saying, no, 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 no. I'll get you a surprise this Christmas. I'll choose your present, yeah? You will have seen a disappointment, okay? And if you haven't, we don't believe you, all right? It's that simple. It never works. Never, ever ignore the list, okay? As an older man, that's my advice to all of you. And from time to time, I have seen, you know, I've seen the face of disappointment, uh, even in ministry, I've said something that I felt God was saying, and you can see someone, that's not what I wanted to hear. But I've never been so disappointing to somebody that they started weeping and wailing with a loud voice. I, I've, I've been bad, but I've never been that bad. <laughs> when the older people and the experienced people saw this new second temple, it says this, the people... Well, it says that they started to weep and to wail. And then you had, instead of Solomon's feast with all the sacrifices and the eight days of feasting and the people going away glad of heart, this pitiful spectacle, the people could not discern the noise of the shouts of joy from the noise of weeping, for the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. So people listening, I can hear crying, I can hear cheering. What is it? I don't know, it's just noise, but it doesn't sound very good. And that was the dedication of the second temple. The, uh, a disappointing and um, a mere shadow 
of what had been in the past. It laid unfinished for 18 years. If you, I don't know if you drive out of town very often, we have to drive into town every day into London, and if you've seen the roadworks up at the junction by the, a, you know, the A120, and that's rather the same. That seems to have been left for about 18 years since they started it. I, but this was even worse with the temple. It had just been left. And Haggai comes into the story, and he starts to prophesy. And he says, the work needs to begin again. Let's finish this temple. Let's get this thing done. And the people believed him, and the work was finished. And then the reading I shared with you at the beginning the greater glory is yet ahead for this temple. And what the previous temple had seen, God's going to do greater things in the new temple. And Haggai talks about this, and he addresses the reality of the situation. And he says, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? But what he's saying to you is it may not look so good, but what God's going to do here is going to eclipse what he'd done in the past. Okay? And that's Haggai's prophecy. Beautiful stuff. And like many of the, the prophets, he never got to see what he had uh, prophesied. But um, my question is, well, was he right? Because if you're going to prophesy, you better be right, hadn't you? Does anyone else find it depressing when somebody prophesies and gets it wrong and then tries a bit of spin doctoring on it? And, uh, you know, well, perhaps what God was saying was something spiritual. You think, no, you were just wrong, and it doesn't matter because sometimes we prophesy when we're right and sometimes we're wrong. It really, it's, I'd rather have a go, actually. I'd rather somebody come up to me and have a go. Um, so, but it does, when you make something powerful like that, the glory will be greater than the past. There's really only one way of finding out. So, this new temple, what happened? If you um, have a look at your Bible, you'll notice uh, in my Bible it's a blank page in the middle. The Old Testament finishes. There's a blank page, and then there's a title page, New Testament and off we go with Matthew, yeah? That blank page, as all of you I'm sure will know, represents about 400 years. Um, nothing the Bible wanted us to know about particularly, but a lot of history. Let me tell you about one of the most um, prominent first things that happened in this temple. A couple of hundred years after Haggai, I said the glory is going to be greater than the previous. Um, we had a desecration. Now, at that time, the empire of Alexander the Great was taking hold and there was a, a Hellenistic king called Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a horrible, evil man who hated Israel, he hated the Jews, he hated their faith, he didn't just hate them, he wanted to do everything he could to destroy them. And so he actually made a personal visit to Jerusalem a couple of hundred years into that 400-year period. And do you know what he did? He went into the holiest of holies and the first thing he did is he looked for the lamp. There was a lamp that was permanently lit that symbolized God's permanent presence. The first thing he did was blow it out, okay? And then he set up an altar to the pagan god Zeus. And then he got a pig, and on the, in this holiest of holies, in the temple of Jerusalem, he sacrificed a pig. And then he got the chief priest, and he got the other elders together, and he made them eat the pig. 
So, so far, Haggai's a little off message, isn't he? Um, the, you know, the idea that the glory of the future is going to be greater than the glory of the past, and 200 years in, and we have a, an impromptu hog roast in the centre of Jerusalem. I remembered our visit to Israel, and I, and I was in the centre of Jerusalem ordering pizza, and genuinely asked, I'd, I'd done a theology degree by this time, and I'd been in the ministry for a couple of years, and I asked if they had ham and pineapple, um, on the pizza. I actually did it, and it was a moment afterwards that I thought, uh, um, <laughs> he sacrificed a pig on the, on the altar that he'd set up in Jerusalem. Do you know, we need to understand this, people, that the pathway to glorious experience in God is not paved with velvet. There are going to be desecrations. There are going to be problems. And sometimes the way that we know we're in the will of God is that we've got a whole heap of trouble. And it's so tiresome when, as Christians, we get to this point where we think, well, that couldn't have been God because something went wrong. David Paulson used to say, people say, what's the, what's the sign that you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And he said, they said what should we expect? He said, trouble. <laughs> Desecration. The Maccabean revolt put it all right, and then the New Testament begins. Now, remember what we're looking for. Is the glory of this second temple greater than the previous one? Baby Jesus is presented at the temple by his parents, Mary and Joseph. And Simeon had been promised, an old man had been promised, that he wouldn't die until he'd seen the Messiah. And so you have this beautiful account in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, excuse me, <clears throat> verse 25 to 32, um, Simeon takes the baby and says, Lord, let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That happened in that new temple. Twelve years later, a 12-year-old Jesus in that same temple confounds the elders and the chief priests, or the scribes and the doctors and the academics of the time with his wisdom. Twelve years of age. I'd love to have been there, wouldn't you, to hear him speak. Um, amazing and beautiful. Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 49. Do you remember the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the first Palm Sunday, if you would? And after that, Jesus enters the same temple. He cleanses the temple. He turns over the tables of the money changers, and he um, says, this house, my father's house, shall be a house of prayers. We're so interested in that that we sometimes miss what happens next. Um, Matthew tells us in chapter 21 that after this had happened in that temple, the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. And then a beautiful line, it says the, the chief priests and the scribes, they, were, they hated it. They absolutely hated it. That happened in this temple. I think these things are looking pretty glorious. I don't know how you feel, but I think whatever Solomon saw, this is beginning to beat it by quite some uh, margin, isn't it? But I submit to you that the greatest thing that ever happened in that temple that wipes the floor with everything that happened before is that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I want to say, Haggai, well done, my son. Yeah? <laughs> Definitely. The glory of that new temple was going to eclipse what had happened in the past. He was right. God spoke to him. 
But in a sense, God didn't have to speak to him to say this, because if you read the Bible, there is a constant theme that God is taking his people from one stage of glory into a greater stage of glory. This is how God works. This is how the Bible works. God has always taken us into something greater. Okay? And sometimes we don't get this and we can't do this because we are prisoners of our pasts. And it really is a case of too good or too bad. Sometimes people's past has been so wonderful that they can't imagine that anything better would happen again. In fact, I spend a great deal of my time preparing to, preparing to speak about people at funeral services. And so often somebody will tell me that the happiest time of mum's life was when we were all kids still at home. And, you know, we can understand that. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely experience. And would you, would you mind me being honest when I say that sometimes I find it both endearing and mildly depressing when parents will talk to me about a wonderful experience years ago of bringing up their children and they, with moist-eyed nostalgia, will say, you know, that was the happiest time in my life. And I think, well, I'm so pleased that you had that experience, but that's a terrible indictment of your understanding of the nature of God who sets up a period in your 30s and 40s as an apex that can never be met again. Because, well, and this is our, almost our stubborn refusal to believe that, I wish I could have paused my life when I was 42. And the idea is that God suddenly ran out of resources, that he threw all his eggs into that basket, and anything that happens in the future is going to be acceptable, but it will never be quite as good. And I want to speak to those of you that have had wonderful pasts and say, don't let that become a bondage that stops you moving into a more glorious future because God has always got better for us and you understand where I'm going with this some of you have had such terrible experiences in the past um, a tragedy an unfair unforeseen tragedy visits the family and it's so understandably easy to think well we're going to carry on and we're not going to let this beat us but it can never be that good again it can, never be that, it can never be the same as that again, of course. But God is able to take the worst that human life can throw at us and still bring us into a place where the glory of the, uh, the, the, the later house is greater than the former. I really believe that. And listen, nobody would blame you if you said, I just can't find the energy or belief to, to believe that. But the truth is, if we can't imagine it, if we can't see it, then guess what? It's going to have to be God that does it, isn't it? And I really believe that the truth of this book, and, you know, so often as Christians we parade this as, you know, I believe every word of it, and, you know, if I got up and said, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I think the book of Jude doesn't really belong in the Bible, I'd never be asked to speak again, you know. We believe the whole thing, don't we? And yet we live our lives as if this central truth isn't applying to us, that the glory of our future is always going to increase on the glory of our past. And this is the thing. The best is always ahead of us. And it's not just the story of the temple that tells us. What did Jesus do as he reflected upon his ministry? The things that he did. He raised the dead. He did things that cannot hardly be believed. They're so wonderful. He spoke in John 14, 12, and he said, 
whoever believes and has seen these things, greater works than these will he do. One of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples is to give what we call the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Think about what he's saying. I preached in the Holy Land. You get the whole world to preach in. The greater is yet to come. The book of Acts, the miracles, the ministry of the early church, um, the letters, Paul, Peter, John, Hebrews, all of this, amazing stuff, wonderful things. But I submit to you that if you want to find the most dramatic and incredible, glorious thing, you go to the last book of the Bible, don't you? Yeah? Some of you don't ever read the last book of the Bible, but have a look. It's beautiful. And I'd like to take you to the Apostle John as I draw to a conclusion this morning. John was there for all of it. He was the youngest of the disciples, most probably. He saw it all. He was the disciple who Jesus really loved. And... and he, he was there with Jesus. He was at the transfiguration. He was at the crucifixion. Um, I love this about John. When the women told Peter and John that the tomb's empty, he's gone, he's risen. The picture is of Peter and John, and it says John ran on ahead. You know, if I'm going to look for something impossible, I'd love to be the guy that ran on ahead, wouldn't you? I wouldn't be, but I'd love to be um, that guy who says something's impossible happened. Where? I'd love to be the one. I don't run anywhere these days, but I'd love to be the guy that ran on ahead. And he would then go on to be part of everything the early church was doing. He would write one, two, and three John. I don't know what you consider a successful life or a fruitful ministry, but knowing Jesus personally and, and being described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, writing 1, 2, and 3 John. You imagine the Bible, you imagine our Christian faith without 1 John chapter 2 or without that wonderful verse, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. This is thank you, John, isn't it, all of this. Now, John is now a very old man. I think he was probably about 90 or 92 years of age. And he is about to be sent to a prison colony, the island of Patmos. He's there and he's being sent there because he has been preaching the gospel. And I would imagine that the authorities probably thought, let's send this really old man to a hostile environment and he'll just die and be forgotten. Now, this doesn't happen in the Bible, but do you mind if I have a bit of fun with you this morning and, and take a little license to suggest something, just to make my point? Can you imagine John standing on the quay, waiting for the boat that's going to take him to the island of Patmos. And he's 90, 92 years of age. And one of the soldiers guarding him hears that that's, that's John. And he's a Christian. And he goes up to John and says, uh, I can't believe I'm meeting you. I'm a Christian myself, even though I'm a Roman soldier. And listen, as you're standing there, God gave me a prophetic word. And he wants to say to you that your best days are ahead of you. He'd be just as good as Haggai, that fellow, wouldn't he? <laughs> because waiting on the island of Patmos was something more incredible than John had experienced, more incredible than the transfiguration. Um, who, who's to say what's great or what? But when you look at what John saw, he knew Jesus. Now, if I said to you, and you'd never read the Bible, John is about to see Jesus again. Jesus is going to, as it were, step down from heaven. I don't know what he'd say oh, wow, how wonderful to see you again. I didn't think I'd see you this side of glory. 
Actually, what happened when John saw him was he said, when I looked upon him who spoke, I fell on my face as if I was dead. Eyes of flashing fire, feet of burnished bronze. I am the Alpha and the Omega. John knew Jesus, but he still could hardly recognize who spoke to him. And he says, I fell on my face as one who was dead. If you asked me to lay down today, um, I'd start get on my knees, and then I'd, uh, I'd probably ease myself down, you know? Um, <laughs> if I fall over, you don't want to be standing in front of me or behind me. That, that is the simple fact of the matter. Um, I don't want to see anyone fall over, but with all due respect, if I get to choose who falls over today, it's going to be someone in their 20s, all right? I'm not having a 90-year-old fall over flat on the face. That, that's not what we want, okay? Um, John fell flat on his face because what he saw was so much more glorious than anything else he'd ever seen that he fell on his face as if he was dead. And I, I love this, the idea that Jesus said he touched him as if to say, old friend, get up, it's me, but we've got some unfinished business to attend to. And he shows him the glory. Because I, I'm telling you this now, I'm not stupid, and I know that as I'm talking about the greater glory is ahead, everyone over the age of 70 is going, yeah, I hope the young people are listening to this, you know. <laughs> And I know some of you are either approaching your 90th birthday or have passed it. Listen, if you think God's finished with you, you've never read the Bible. Because the glory of the future is always greater than the glory of the past. And to say something different is to deny what the central theme of the Bible seems to be showing us. To say something different is to suggest that God has run out of ideas. That God has run out of glory. That God has run out of power that God did his best work in the 1960s or during the revival. Some of us lived through a, a move of the Spirit in the early 90s. I know it touched the church here, and you can look back to it and think, now, nah, do you remember that when we used to shake and things used to happen? And we think, wow, that was exciting. It was a bit weird, some of it, but it was genuinely quite exciting. And we can read books. I, I study a lot of history, and you read about the great revivals of the past, and it's easy to look back and think, wow, I wish I had a time machine. But if we can only get hold of this, uh, John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was waiting for something to happen. If we could only submit to God and believe this, as a church, as a family, as individuals, we would begin to understand that whatever has happened in the past, important as it is, needs to be parked while we look for what God wants to do with us next. Because what he's doing next is going to be more glorious than what he's doing in the past and that my friends I believe is a fact of scripture okay father what have you got for us what is it where is it and can we have it as soon as possible please <laughs> we repent of the worship of the past we repent of the fear of the past. And we're not just talking about you doing a few bits and pieces with us in the days ahead. We're talking about you doing more than we've asked or imagined. So help us not just to believe this, but to live with expectancy. And as a fellowship, Lord, what have you got for us? What is it? What is it? Because whatever you have, 
You're going to find in us uh, people with open hands and open hearts that want it so desperately. So help us to believe that the glory of the future is going to be so much greater than the glory of the past. In Jesus' name.